0: We've read 2nd Kings 2 and <clears throat> the question in the chapter is where is the Lord? Where is the God of Israel? That question has been asked before in the book of Kings in 1st Kings that was really the question that Israel and the prophets of Baal faced when Elijah was calling to the Lord, is there a God in the house? And fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, and they knew the God of Israel is here. The God of Israel is is present among us active at work has not forgotten is paying attention but that's that's history and Elijah is about to leave and <clears throat> you can imagine if you were one of the other the sons of the prophets that you might be dreading that day a little bit. Losing Elijah, that great prophet. This is a hard transition for the people of God to go through. And it's a transition that every generation goes through. Losing the generation that came before us. And it's always hard. But when you have a hero like Elijah, it's particularly tempting for us to be fearful, faithless, for us to think that without him, how could we possibly continue? How could the work go on? God has been using him mightily. What are we going to do? without Elijah? How is the work of God going to survive without Elijah? Well, to ask that question is natural on the one hand, and on the other hand, it makes no sense at all. God is the one who has been using Elijah. Elijah is not the one who has been using Elijah to accomplish great things. God is the one who is using Elijah to accomplish great things. And so, the loss of Elijah, though it is a loss to God's people, is no loss to God. God is not dependent on Elijah, or when the next great man like Elijah will show up, waiting impotently. Boy, that Elijah fellow was really useful for my work. I wonder if anybody else like that is ever going to show up. No, God is the one who made Elijah. He's the one who made him what he was. He's the one who is using him. And he's the one who can make another Elijah when he wants to. And it's funny the way Elijah and Elisha are so similarly named. We get Elijah's replacement and he's Elisha. And it's just that easy. God has no trouble replacing Elijah, does he? Lose Elijah, have Elisha. But there was no guarantee that God would provide Elisha, was there? And sometimes we lose great saints, great men and women of faith, and they're not replaced. God doesn't send anybody else like them. God determines that he's going to carry on his work without using a great person. But his work will continue. He is not dependent even on his ability to raise up great men. God brings about the salvation of his people. Irregardless of whether it's through a great man or a little man, or boys and girls. As a matter of fact, so we saw last week the mouths of babes praise God and bring him glory, don't they? But this is a hard time. It's a hard time for the people of God, and they know the time is coming when they won't have Elijah anymore. We see at the beginning that the prophets are saying to Elisha, you know, Elijah is about to go away, your master. And remember, Elisha is the one who washes Elijah's hands and feet, right? He's just a servant. That's what, he's been, that's what he's been used for so far, just to serve Elijah. Elijah, who has been the protection of God's people, of Israel, spiritually and physically. Think of him warning the king, don't go to battle, you're going to get a bunch of people killed including yourself. The king doesn't listen. Nevertheless, Elijah has been used by God to warn against spiritual destruction and physical destruction and to prevent it. Right? Actually, uh, If you go back and you read, as Elisha is leaving, I mean Elijah, I'm going to keep doing that. As Elijah is leaving, the whirlwind comes, and in verse 12, Well, let me back up and read 11. As they were going along and talking, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw and cried out, My father, my father. Now, why is he crying out, My father? Do you think Elisha wanted to lose Elijah? My father, my father. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, you notice maybe if you're reading along on the screen that I skipped a couple of words in italics. Elisha saw it. It is provided by the translators helpfully determining what Elisha Elisha, Elisha saw. It just says, Elisha saw. Elisha saw and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. If you look in your Bible, you'll see there's a footnote. It's not chariots. Literally, it's chariot. Elisha saw and cried out my father my father the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And commentators think he's not calling out to Elijah who is in the whirlwind on his way up to heaven. Look there's a there's a chariot. There's a chariot of fire, right? No. He is describing his father as the chariot and horseman of the Lord of heaven. He's calling out again, there goes my father. There goes the chariot of Israel, the glorious protector of God's people, the messenger of the Lord. Could the commentators be wrong? Yeah. They could be. But regardless of what Elisha is thinking, we see clearly how the sons of the prophets take the loss of Elijah. <clears throat> They are losing an important man. What will they do without him? Well, this isn't the end of Elijah in the story. Does anybody, else, does, does anybody know where else he shows up? Yeah. The transfiguration. Smart cookie. He's paying attention and he knows big words. (laughs) What is the transfiguration? It's when Jesus takes just a couple of his disciples up onto the mountain and there in their presence he is transfigured and they see him. They see More of his true nature. And then together with him, in shining light, who shows up but Elijah and and Moses. What a glorious, glorious thing. If there was any doubt about the greatness of the man Elijah, when he shows up at the transfiguration, all doubt is erased, isn't it? This was a great man. And similarly to many of the great men of the faith, Old Testament, New Testament, and down through to today. They have no great monuments erected to them. Where is Elijah's grave? He doesn't get one. There's no grave for us to bury Elijah in because there's no body for us to bury. Where is where is Moses' grave? We don't know. There's no great monument raised up for the great man Moses. God buried him secretly, so we don't know. And my uh, favorite commentary that I read. Is by a guy, and, and I'm going to be quoting him a couple of times during this sermon. Is a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. And uh, he pointed out that we also have no idea where Calvin was buried. Calvin insisted that he simply be buried without pomp and ceremony, like he was nobody. He wasn't nobody, but we don't have a great gravestone for Calvin. He wouldn't allow it. Now, the fact that we don't know and the fact that he wouldn't allow it doesn't mean that nobody can raise up a monument for Moses or for Elijah or for the apostle Peter or Paul or John or the great reformers or but i want you to take note that these great men are quite different even after their death than how we want to treat people today in raising up great monuments to them. The sons of Proph- the prophets wanted to go and find him, didn't they? Even if he was dead, cast down onto a mountain somewhere, you know, then we could... Take his body and bury it and raise up a a great monument to the great man. He was a great man. What are they going to do without him? Well, in our passage in this chapter, Elijah and Elisha together travel from Bethel to Jericho to Jordan, okay? And by the time you get to the end of the story, Elisha has traveled back from Jordan to Jericho, to Bethel, and the story isn't over until you've completed that process, right? And so the author tells the whole story. And some of the things that he tells in that process are pretty stunning. In fact, shocking. Uh, Unpleasantly shocking in one case. We'll get to the bears at the end. You like those bears? But before... Elisha is traveling back before Elijah is gone. Elisha requests a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And Elijah says, You have asked a hard thing. You have asked a hard thing. Now, what do you think he means when he says that he's asked a hard thing. Hard is the same as difficult, right? Asked a difficult thing. Do you think that Elijah is saying that it would be very hard, very difficult to give or to get a double portion? I'm not sure I'm able to accomplish that. I don't know if I can do that for you. I don't think so. I think he is saying, you are asking to receive a very heavy, difficult burden. To receive a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. Elijah, the prophet who suffered greatly, A great man, yes. A man who prayed that it wouldn't rain and for three years not a drop of rain fell. Earnest prayer of a righteous man. But it didn't come without a cost, did it? You remember why Elisha is attached to him? Because he prayed and said, Lord, take me. I, I can't, I'm done. I'm, I can't do more. And so, to ask for a double portion of Elijah's spirit is a huge burden. Huge burden. And so I ask you, who... Do you want to be like? Elisha wanted to be like Elijah. In fact, more so. He wanted to be like that great man and and even more. Remember Ezekiel, God says he'll have to give him a forehead of Flint, for him to deal with the hard-headedness of the people of Israel? What's it going to take for Elisha to deal with the people of Israel? He wants to be twice as Elijah-ish as Elijah himself is. Well, that's not really... An accurate way of describing it, but I want you to see a a double portion of your spirit. What is his spirit? It's a spirit of power, of prayer, of holiness, of prophecy. It's the spirit of God resting on him, isn't it? A double portion of the spirit. It's also the spirit of being responsible for the nation of Israel. If Elijah is the one that's been protecting them spiritually, that all of the sons of the prophets look to for help, for comfort, for instruction. Elisha wants that and more. Is it because Elisha is power hungry? Is it because he likes influence? Is it because he thinks he has what it takes? Maybe he does have some of that. We don't know his heart. but I think it's doubtful because he's served Elijah and he knows the burden. He knows that it's, it's, not a, it's not a fun thing to have a bunch of spiritual power and to be responsible for a bunch of souls, a whole nation of souls, and, and for all of those people to be Baal worshipers. It's not exactly a fun task. It's not exactly an easy task. He's seen it in Elijah. And so, who do you want to be like? Do you want to be responsible for others the way that Elijah is responsible for others? Do you want him to be the one that you say, my father, my father, as he's as he's taken away, and say, I'm going to be like him and more. I want to be like him and more. I'm going to be a spiritual father to others. I'm going to be a spiritual mother to others. It's easier just to be a decent God-worshipper, God-follower yourself, and to not be responsible for others, to not be concerned for the souls of others, to not have the responsibility of instructing, correcting, calling to repentance, prophesying, laboring over in prayer. It's easier to not... To not have a double portion of the Spirit. He is asked a difficult thing. What do you want? In some ways, this is just the calling of a pastor. It's a heavy and often thankless calling. So, learn your lesson, boys. If you want a nice, easy, cushy life, don't become a pastor. Don't ask for a double spirit of your father's, double portion of your father's spirit. You you get what I'm saying? Because I know your fathers. Your fathers care for the souls of others. But if you want to be like your father, if you want to have a double portion of his spirit, you want a good thing. A difficult thing. A challenge. Something hard. But something very good. Not... Because you're strong, not because you're capable, not because you're so eloquent, not because you're so faithful, but because God is with his people and he has not left them. Where is the God of Israel? He's here. He has not left. Elijah has. God has not. And I'm not old enough yet that I am facing the need to have faith for the generation that comes after me to do the work, because I can still do the work. But I'm old enough that my dad is facing that, and I'm facing, what will, what will it be without him? What will it be without my father? Father? What will I need to take on? What will I have to do? And do I have the strength for it? In Joshua, God parts the Jordan for his people to enter the land. What does he demonstrate? They're coming into the promised land. They need to get into the promised land. And and what happens? The Jordan parts. And everybody knows God is here. God is with us. God is present. He has not abandoned us. He's not staying over in the wilderness. God is with us. He's still saving his people. And God is still with his people generations later, centuries later. Lots and lots has changed. What hasn't changed is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is still among his people. And what does he do? He parts the Jordan again doesn't he? So in verse 8, Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. God is with Elijah, isn't he? And then Elijah's gone And just a few verses later, verse 13, He took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. God's still present, isn't he? Who is the God of Elijah? He is the God of Elisha. He is our God. He is a God who is still accomplishing great things. Down through the ages, he still demonstrates his might, his power his glory, his presence among his people. He's still bringing people to repentance and protecting his church down through the Reformation, down through the Great Awakening, down through to today. Even into. Today's culture, a culture much like the one that Elijah and Elisha faced, one of idolatry, one of abandonment, of turning away from most of the people, away from the worship of the Lord. Where many people who claim the name of God don't actually worship him. What is he doing? He's at work. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't abandoned. He still demonstrates his power. Sometimes in great and marvelous public things like the Jordan spreading apart before all the people of the entire nation of Israel to walk across on dry land. And sometimes where it's just Elisha and Elijah. Sometimes when it's just Elisha. It's still a marvelous work of God, isn't it? It's still a miraculous thing. Still a glorious thing that God is doing, even when it's not hugely public. But not everybody sees it. Maybe the sons of the prophets seemed to have seen it from the other side. That's about it, as far as we know. God is still with his people, the Israelites, even after Elijah is gone. But the sons of the prophets, those prophets, those who loved him and were helped by him, they still want him. And they won't listen to Elisha, even though they know the Spirit of God is on him, as it was on Elijah. Is it because they are tempted to trust in Elijah, the man, rather than in Elijah's God? God is still with his people. He's still using his prophets to bring about miraculous changes. And so as the prophets are finally forced to reckon with, no, really, Elijah is gone. We get another miracle. And what a beautiful miracle it is. It's, it's hard for us to fathom the Jordan parting, right? I mean, these miracles are miracles. They're crazy. They're amazing. They're marvelous. But here's, here's quite the miracle. And I think it might have escaped your notice why this miracle is so particularly incredible and beautiful. The next miracle is what? When he is in Jericho. Now, Jericho is uh, an important city. Jericho, we we if we know our Bible, we know we've we've heard about Jericho before. Something about Jericho. What, what was it that happened at Jericho? Yeah. Oh, I see those hands. What happened at Jericho? That's right, there were soldiers around the city, and then what happened? That's right, they walked around it. They walked around that city, seven, and the seventh time, they made as much noise as they could, and then what happened? The walls fell down, and the city collapsed. That's right, what a... What an amazing thing. This is Jericho. That's what happened at Jericho. Now, you might not remember that then the city was cursed. What did they do? They crossed over the Jordan to Jericho. God destroyed Jericho and the city was cursed. And it's still under that curse. And what does Elisha do? By the power of God, he undoes the curse. And the city is blessed. What do they say? To him they say, verse 19: Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. It's not to be surprised. Not too much of a surprise when uh, when the city's been cursed in the Lord's name, is it? The land is unfruitful. It looks like it should be a good place to have a city. It looks like the land should produce well here, but it just doesn't, and the water is terrible. He said, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. What a beautiful gift. But the curse is ended. The curse is ended. Is that allowed? Isn't it supposed to be eternally cursed? When God decides that the curse is done, the curse is done. God is present among his people. You couldn't ask for a better thing. You couldn't ask for a more glorious thing than for the God who is responsible for for all of our well-being, to look down and to see the effects of the curse and to say, you know what? No. We're done with that. I'm going to undo it. The effects of the curse are going to be undone. Now, you see it in this one city over there in Jericho, right? Wow, that's great. But do you see it in yourself? God at work bringing an end to the affliction of the curse. Is God still at work today? Like he was in the time of Elisha in Jericho? He is. He's still at work. He's still at work bringing an end to the curse. But but God is the one who gave the curse. He can't, you know, it's it's supposed to be permanent, right? Like if God is, you know, God's actually mad, then it should be. Yeah, but when God says, cursed is the ground, God can also say, blessed is the ground. When God says, I'm going to remake it and make it good and perfect and holy. It's going to be good and perfect and holy. There's no doubt about it. When God says that he's going to complete the good work that he has begun in you. There's no doubt about whether the good work is going to be completed. Where is the God of Elijah? The God of Elijah is here. The God of Elijah is is in our midst. The God of Elijah is still miraculously ending the effects of the curse. And then you've got the bears. And we can't end without talking about the bears, can we? Because what a crazy story. And of course, a lot of people read this and are like, ah, that's just, that's just made up. That's Somebody added that for fun at some point, I guess. I don't know. No. No, 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 no. This is the continuation and really the completion of the story. Where is the God of Elijah? The God of Elijah is still present. Remember, when Elisha was first mentioned, it was when Elijah said, Oh, I can't handle it anymore. And God said, I'm going to provide a replacement. The people that the king of uh, I forgot. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Eh, the neighboring the neighboring country. He's going to. He's going to judge Israel by sending the neighboring king. And the people who the neighboring king doesn't kill with his judgment, Elisha is going to be the judge. And here comes the judgment of God through Elisha. Right after he's been given a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, part of the judgment is Death. Death for those who despise God and his word and his prophet and the prophet's ministry. Elijah, if you read this without understanding, Elijah just seems like a bit of a monster, right? I mean, you're talking about boys, probably 10 to 12 years old. And you know what boys are like. Boys will be boys after all. They're a bit stupid sometimes. And yeah, but, you know. All they did was call them a couple of names. They really didn't deserve to have bears come and maul them and destroy forty or so of them. What's wrong with that? Elisha guy. Perhaps to quote Dale Ralph Davis again, channeling the critics. He says, perhaps if Elisha had had decaffeinated coffee, he wouldn't have been so edgy. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've had too much coffee. and You get a little bit irritable. A bunch of boys come out. And where do they come out from? The central town of Baal worship. And what do they do? They come out and they mock God's newly appointed prophet. Is it an accident? Is it just sort of a fun game that they play sometimes? Let's go out on the road and No, they come out to taunt, to mock the Lord's chosen prophet. They come out of the city specifically to do that. Kids, have you ever had a friend suggest doing something that you knew was a bad idea? And have you ever gone ahead and done it with them? I want you to remember this story. Sometimes something that seems incredibly safe and harmless but you know is wrong is a lot more dangerous than you thought. You never know when bears are going to show up. Right? I mean, you've never had them show up before, have you? There's a first time for everything. Because I guarantee you these boys had never had bears show up on them either or they would have quit doing this a long time ago. When I was a kid, there was a boy who lived, I think, right next door to us. They rented the house, and the house had a detached garage further back on the property. They didn't use the detached garage. As far as we knew, nobody used the detached garage. It was a little bit run down. He convinced me to go with him one time to break the windows in that garage. You might think, what a stupid thing to be convinced to do. It took some work on his part. But eventually I was that stupid. And you know what happened? The owner found that the windows of his garage where he kept his boat or broken, and he was not pleased, and I had to pay to replace the windows. Makes sense, right? Consequences. Can you imagine being one of these boys? they just wishing that they had not gone along with it. Who do you want to grow up to be like? I'm asking the question again. Who do you want to grow up to be like? You don't want to grow up to be like the parents of these boys. It wasn't accidental that the chief place of the worship of Baal had a bunch of sons who hated God's servant, his prophet. Their parents had led them into this. And your choice in this story is Elijah, grow up to be like him, or grow up to be like those boys, well, their parents. Their parents are still alive. They grew up. The boys are all dead. And I know a number of young men who chose to pursue the things that were fun in life Instead of pursuing God, instead of pursuing being like Elijah or Elisha. And you know what happened? Some of them are dead. Dead because of the pursuit of pleasure. You think, oh, I'm strong. Oh, nothing bad can happen to me. Sometimes bears show up. Don't forget it. I'm going to read this quote again from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, they were covenant bears. Covenant bears. A weird thing, huh? They were covenant bears. The covenant curse... Of Leviticus twenty-six twenty-two, again, it pays to know your Bible, doesn't it? I will let loose the wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. God's judgment is still present, isn't it? He says that explains the episode. Just that one verse. It's not, it's not that Elisha was thin-skinned. It's not that he'd had too much caffeine. It's not that he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. It's God fulfilling his promise when he said he was going to call Elisha and going back to Leviticus. To continue reading, he says, covenant infidelity, hatred of Yahweh's representative, and perhaps persisting in Bethel's perverse worship, has brought the covenant curse. Had Elisha been wrong to curse, one would assume Yahweh would not have fulfilled the curse. That Yahweh did so validates Elisha's curse. Here is not an irritable prophet, but a judging God. A judging God. Being a prophet of God means proclaiming God's miraculous, restoring, curse-reversing, healing power, and his judgment. All of God's character is on display here. So we want the God of Elijah to be present among us, right? We love the idea of the curse of Jericho being lifted, the waters being cleansed, the unfruitfulness being gone. Do we love his judgment being poured out? Do we love the God of Elijah being present? Are we willing to hear God's judgment on the church of America Or do we wish that that prophet would just keep on going up, right on out of town? Go on up. Keep on going. Don't stop here. All of God's character is still on display, even though Elijah is gone. God has not abandoned his people. He's called a new servant to carry on the work. And I don't know when my, jo- when my job is going to end and my time is going to come. So even though I said I wasn't worried about it, it might be tomorrow. And my hope and my prayer is that when I'm gone, even more of God's Spirit will be present in you young men to carry on the work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the transition from Elijah to Elisha, and that you did not change and you did not leave, but you stayed present, and that you are still present today. Father, we give you glory and thanks. Now, Father, heal us from the curse pour out your judgment and your wrath on sin. And Father, may a double portion of your Spirit be poured out on these, your followers, and in particular, Father, those who will accept the mantle of shepherding your people Give them strength for that difficult work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.